Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Ryan Preventure from Movio. And I'm Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. Uh, Simon's not with us this week, Ryan. He is somewhere in South Africa. Um, but we'll hopefully uh, get, get him on the pod again next week. My first question to you, though, is are you trick-or-treating and what's your costume, if you are? <laughs> I am not trick-or-treating. I'm a tiny bit too old for that now, just by a couple of years. So. But uh, we will be giving out candy. We have a lot of people in our neighborhood, so I'm always excited to see what the thing is of the year that kids are wearing. So you weren't going to wear the hot movie marketer costume, uh, given that no, every costume no. is hot or slutty. <laughs> I, deci I decided not to. I'll wear it to work tomorrow, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, casual Tuesday in the office. Sure, right. Hey, look, let's have a look at some of the box office. I'll jump in for Simon this week. Uh, we should start by saying that Halloween weekends are never really that massive, and less so this year, given we're in the lull between week one of Black Adam and Black Panther coming down the pike in, in a couple of days. But based on the grosses, we are a one-movie market globally at the moment, with Black Adam dominating. It added $39 million internationally. It's sitting at an international cum of about 139 mil. In the holdover markets, excluding domestic, it's only down 45%, which is really strong for a superhero movie like this. It's remained number one at 60 of the 76 international markets where it's held over from last week. It's also stayed number one in the US market, added another 27.7 mil, down 59%, which is still pretty solid and is sitting at a domestic cum of a little over $111 million. Now, we are seeing the international market pull ahead of the domestic market. I think that shows the international appeal of Dwayne Johnson. Uh, and we're now seeing when you add those two parts, international and domestic together, that just after two weekends, it's crossed the billion dollar mark at the box office. And it's got its nose about three million in front of Hobbs and Shaw, which while not a DC title, is of course part of the Fast and, Franch Fast and Furious franchise. So a pretty good hold. Also worth calling out that it's not yet gone into Japan. That's, that's coming up on December 2. And there's no plans for China. So taking that into account is um, a really solid result there. One other thing to call out is that significant disparity between reviewers and fans on Rotten Tomatoes. The, the reviewers sitting at 39%, the fans at 90%. Ryan, what's the role of critics if they can't speak for moviegoers? I don't know if necessarily, and I don't want to diss any, any reviewers, but I don't know how important they're going to be for big movies like this. I think for art films, they are going to still very much matter because the people that pay attention to those will make a decision, A, if, if, is this uh, sitting high in Rotten Tomatoes? I think that's maybe a little bit less for the superhero big tent pictures. Uh, you're just not seeing, you're not seeing that as much. No, and it feels to me, especially with the blockbusters, they don't speak for the audience. They're looking at it as a, a piece of art, which might be fine, but I think that context needs to be communicated. I guess the art and the audience somehow coalesce when you're talking about upscale and specialised movies, as, as you say. But that is a big disparity, and I feel like, you know, given that Rotten Tomatoes is a brand and um, a sign of quality, that it, it, the disparity is not helping the industry, and it's not reflecting the moviegoer. Right, and I think in a way it's good that they have they have the audience score and they do have the Rotten Tomatoes score. So people who say, hey, you know what, maybe I'll see this, maybe I won't. Well, the audiences seem to love it. Maybe this is worth going to see this weekend. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, if we look at the other top three titles, again, all been rounded out by holdovers. So uh, the George Clooney, Julia Roberts Ticket to Paradise added another 12.9 million globally, 2.9 million coming from international markets, where, of course, it's been out for a number of weeks now. It's sitting at 119.4 mil, 85.7 mil of that is international. Again, slightly better um, received by the audience at 88% versus 56% for the reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes. Of course, there is discussion now that rom-coms are back, baby, and, and there's audiences for them. I'm wondering if they ever really left when there's a good uh, rom-com that comes out appropriately marketed, then we find an audience. Um, it doesn't feel like genres live or die. It's the quality of each film. No, you're absolutely right. And then, of course, we're in horror season. So the phenomenal smile added another 7 mil from 62 international markets, just off by 35% on prior week. Another 5.1 mil came domestically. It's almost at um, 100 mil internationally, so excluding the domestic market, sitting just shy of 94 mil. It's 186 mil globally. That's 11 times its estimated budget of $17 million. An absolutely remarkable result for any horror film let alone new IP and low budget. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if done correctly, they bring in the audience. They absolutely do. And um, now when we look out at number four, so we're, we're finally moving past the holdovers, we've got Pray for the Devil. It opened in 63 markets, including North America. It's definitely skewing to that domestic market with 11.5 mil total, 7 mil um, coming from North America, 4.5 mil elsewhere. Uh, Again, not, not critic-proof, 21% from critics, uh, but 69% from audiences. Uh, we'll talk in a little bit about the audience, but this really does feel like a horror playlist when you look at the top 10 at the moment. Yeah, it does. And I think, honestly, the, the cinema score matches pretty close to the audience score from Rotten Tomatoes. It got a C+. People weren't as enthused about this. I think one of the things that you find is when you have a really pretty good opening for Halloween, a very good opening for Smile. There could be a little bit of of fatigue in terms of people wanting to see it. Although this this movie did, you know, at seven million, did open in the in the the range that people wanted at Lionsgate. So there's that. And the fact is that it just that it cracked the top ten, and that there are all these films in the top ten. And there's another one, Terrifier Two, which is a kind of a smaller feature that went wide last weekend that was in the top 10 and that's another horror film so when done correctly and having good word of mouth like smile certainly does you can have a really nice hit that can last a number of weeks horror films don't have to die right away i think there's this feeling that horror films have an opening weekend and a really a big opening friday and then that's it i don't think that has to be true and smile is really the great example of that yeah and you you raised terrifier too it's um earned a modest 7.6 mil after four weeks, but its budget's supposed to be only of a quarter of a million dollars. It's earned 30 times its budget to date. That's got to be one of the most profitable films of, of recent years, let alone this year alone. Sometimes you don't have to say, oh, it has to make 50 million or 100 million. Sometimes just look at the budget, look at the marketing you put in it, and they marketed it well. They didn't market it expensively either. And the, yeah, 30 times what it cost? No distributor or filmmaker is gonna is gonna think that that's a bad day. That's that's pretty fantastic. Hey, why don't we dive into the audience for Pray for the Devil in a bit more detail? Can you tell us who showed up to buy the tickets? 
Well, as you would expect, we did some comparisons here, and the movies that are showing up, some of the modern movies that are showing up of this year, are Halloween Ends, Smile, The Invitation, Barbarian, The Black Phone, and Pearl. So again, all of these sort of fit into that that genre. And what was interesting is less frequent people can, uh, and occasionals were, were, were more than compared to an actual film which we look at, which was The Nun. So more frequents came out compared to the comps. So more people frequent who come frequently, 39 to 34%. You're not seeing a huge difference there. But what was interesting is there were a lot of single ticket buyers, uh, 35% to 23% for The Nun, which is interesting because at least when I think of a horror film, when I want, when I go to a horror film, I want to see it with, I want to be with someone else. You know, I want to get scared, not just with people I don't know. I want to get scared with someone I do know. There's that sort of protector thing there. Well, it's hard to hug and, a stranger these days. Yeah, they, they tend to frown upon it for some mm. reason. So <laughs> there there is that sort of idea that for some reason, people were wanting to see this one alone. Uh 18 to 24 demo was larger uh, than the, uh, the comps at 26% for the comps and 18% for Pray for the Devil. So again, a, a bit of a difference there. Uh, but the gender demographics were pretty close. Now, The Nun had kind of a female bad character and the the and Pray for the Devil had a female lead, uh, which we haven't seen in these sort of exorcist films. So you would think it'd skew a little more female and it does, but they were virtually the same. Again, horror tends to skew a little bit more male, but depending on the type of films, it can it can go either way. Yeah, I wonder, looking at how this skews slightly younger than the comps that you looked at, whether that single ticket um, reflects the fact that individuals came and bought a ticket by themselves. They came with others, but as opposed to coming as a couple um, or, or, you know, sort of married pair, which might happen if it skews a bit older. So um, it, it's, I guess, the nature of our data that we look at uh, the transaction as opposed to the shot, you know, who, who's before and after. So I wonder if there's some, some um, coalescence of that age with the ticket mix too. And it's important to note, although it's 18 to 24, the younger demographic came out probably a little more for this as well, because compared to any of these other films, this movie was PG-13. So everyone, every, everything else in the comps was rated R. So there is a little bit of a difference there as well. And I guess the only other thing, if we want to touch on some of the other outperformers, not necessarily in absolute dollars, but but um, some of those other categories at the box office, Trafalgar releasing had a, a live broadcast of a Coldplay concert coming out of Buenos Aires, earned about a million dollars from 833 screens. That was uh, a per screen of $1,218, which is pretty good given that it only had a couple of performances there to, to rake that money in. Armageddon Time, which is the wide release of next week, debuted in six screens uh, and earned $72,000. That's $12,000 per screen. We'll see how that looks next week when it expands more broadly. Getting some very solid reviews, but um, a tough subject matter, so we'll see whether it resonates. And the really well-reviewed uh, Banshees of Inner Sheeran added 54 screens to get to 58 this weekend just passed. Over that weekend just gone, it generated 540000 which is 9,300 per screen. I imagine it'll keep ticking along. And if the buzz holds through to award season and it features prominently, maybe it has a really long tail. I think what we're going to see as well is movies like Tar, which hasn't, which hasn't really exploded yet, but went further wide this weekend, will continue to find audiences as it continues to get awards. It's like three hours and 
45 minutes or something close to that. So it's a long film. So that might be driving some people away. And Until's another one that now is pretty much wide. But again, these movies, although they're not making huge amounts as they're expanding, they are staying solid. And hopefully the idea will be as we get into the award season into December, uh, we'll start to see, we'll start to see these continue to hold water. Hopefully they do, and certainly with the Fablemans opening later this month as well, uh, Spielberg is looking to hopefully get a pretty good audience there that uh, is looking for awards. Yeah, and hopefully, and I'm sure it's the case they're trailering uh, each other's films, um, and so there's a, a, a virtuous cycle being created. Somebody sees one sees these other specialized films coming back in force into the multiplexes and the specialized cinemas and go to the others. So another reason to hope that the long tail uh, is preserved there. Now, it's going to be quiet next week. All eyes of the week after for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, what can you tell us that, uh, about what you're seeing in terms of pre-sale audience at the moment? Well, when we looked at it uh, from a numero perspective, it's more than double 11 days out that what Thor and Thor Love and Thunder had, which was 144 million domestic opening. Whether it does double that will be, is sort of debatable, but it's about 65% of Spider-Man's opening, which was 260 million. So it's going to be interesting. It's, it is looking from what we've seen in some predictors that it's going to do between 180 and 210 million. If it does do that, it will be the largest opening of November ever, which is just, a, again, you have to remember that we're still, we're still, there's a part of the pandemic that's still a part of us all. So when you're having numbers like Spider-Man had last December, and then now we're going to potentially have the biggest number in November, those are just, those are fantastic things to celebrate. And we, it wasn't, it was 2016 when Hunger Games Catching Fire did 158 million. And all points are looking like it's going to do well above 158 million for its opening weekend. This is going to be a, hopefully a really good start to what, what should be a, a pretty good November and December. Yeah, and we look at pre-sale audiences separately from those who come in season. Is there anything you can tell us about Black Panther's um, pre-sales audience now and how it might compare to other Marvel titles, for example? Yeah, so it's, it's comparing pretty evenly in, in a lot of the ways. Uh, as you would imagine, if you're just comparing it to other audiences, the African-American audience is skewing higher as it as it did for, for the original Black Panther as well. But there's still a universality that you're kind of seeing in the audience. And certainly I think when it's, when it's all said and done, everyone is gonna go see it. Um, the 18 to 24 is a, little bit old, is a little bit lower than compared to some of the other Marvel movies. So what we're seeing is that an older audience is going out and it tends to be a little more female. That could be, the trailers are skewing a little stronger female and showing female empowerment, which is of course fantastic for the Marvel universe and it could be that that women are just seeing that and saying hey i want to go out uh, i think that's going to probably level out a little bit as we get closer to the opening but again these are all these are all really good signs uh pointing that the movie is is going to find its right audience next uh the weekend from next so ron we don't have an interview this week and the reason for that is i wanted to have a bit of a discussion and get your opinion around one of the largest transactions in recent years that has a bearing on the entertainment and media space, that being Elon Musk's $44 billion takeover of Twitter, which completed last week. In the week since, he's fired the CEO, the CFO, head of legal and general counsel. 
Yesterday, he tweeted a particularly toxic bit of information around the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. He did delete it, but of course, it's been screenshot and widely shared. And today, he apparently fired the board of directors and announced himself as the sole director of Twitter. Um, prior to coming on board and completing the transaction, Musk talked about being a free speech absolutist and returning some of the uh, Arkham Asylum's worth of people who'd been booted off the platform back on. He's now walked that back a bit and talking about adding a content moderation party, uh, no doubt as part of achieving what he has called out as an aspiration of becoming the most respected advertising platform in the world. At the same time, advertisers are wary. General Motors announced a temporary suspension of all advertising on Twitter as it tries to, in its words, understand the direction of the platform under this new ownership. And there is reason for concern as hate speech has exploded on, on the platform since the, the transaction was completed. Now, there's talk that this is simply people testing the system to see how, how foolproof it is. But it does show the system can't cope uh, when all of this, this hate speech and racist epithets are appearing. And Musk has talked about significant layoffs, some of which would impact uh, those responsible for moderation. Now, I raise all of this because at the beginning of 2022, Twitter made a concerted effort to attract more film and TV marketing. Uh, it was citing case studies in October of last year when they partnered with Warner Brothers for what they called hashtag Dune Week where the cast and director did Q&As on the Twitter-operated account known as at Twitter Movies, so not the studio's one, it was Twitter's own. They did similar Q&As for The Matrix Resurrection, and the stars of Spider-Man No Way Home and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness spent time responding to fan tweets and answering questions. There was also a promotion around the reboot of Scream, where there were uh, expanded sets of reactions for people who liked the at Scream uh, movies hashtag. And so I wonder whether this takeover and its implications may have a bearing on marketers and maybe turn them away from the platform. So what I'd like to do is get your opinion on some specifics. I think the first one I'd like to talk to is some research from an organization known as the Network Contagions, uh, the Network Contagion Research Institute. They are an organization that identifies and forecasts cyber social threats and they found that in the 12-hour period post the completion of the transaction, use of the N-word had jumped 500% over the previous average, which is just horrendous. And I think this has to have general wide-reaching implications, but especially if you're Disney and you have a film like Black Panther Wakanda Forever or any studio that has an ethnically diverse cast, this has got to make you think twice, doesn't it? It does. And... If I were running any of those studios, I'd put the brakes on Twitter right now and say, we, we need to figure out where this is going. We can't support a company that is going to have an increase of 500% in hate speech overall. I mean, it's just, every, it's it's got to be making every corporation that works with Twitter nervous right now. And, you know, I, I think what companies are probably going to do is look at the short game right mm. now and say, we need to halt this and we'll we'll wait and see how this how this performs moving forward if if it continues to be this way then maybe we maybe we've just used other formats that are working really well for us whether it's tiktok or instagram or other formats and we we put twitter to the side if 
Musk can make those changes and hopefully allow there to be some regulation within the company, and he's not just the sole decider and everything, corporations might later consider themselves interested in coming back. But with this sort of uh, social media hate speech going on, it, it, it would be, I would be hard pressed to see if major organizations would want to stay on the platform, at least right now. Yeah, and organizations tend to reflect the tone from the top. And if the very top is participating in misinformation, uh, not saying he was involved in the hate speech, but misinformation as well, then it's going to be quite hard to, to change it if there's a, a tacit endorsement. Aside from the organizations, a number of industry players have announced that they're leaving Twitter, at least temporarily. Uh, Shonda Rhimes is the highest profile, the, the prolific showrunner for TV. But if this started a trend, do you imagine that influential movie makers and stars might be the ones pushing the studios to not advertise on Twitter, that they don't want their movies uh, to be on that platform? Well, if one's like the two big ones that we've dealt with in the last mm. you know, eight months, Tom Cruise gets off Twitter and so does Dwayne The Rock Johnson, then suddenly I think studios start to listen and go, oh, well, we're losing our biggest commodities here that are there to support our films, not using this platform. Uh, maybe we need to pay attention. I'd like to think that studios will pay attention no matter what celebrities are doing mm. and take the right course based on on their morals. But, you know, you never know how those it's it's for, in many respects. And this is always kind of sad to say it, it is about the dollars and our, I, yeah. it doesn't make more sense for us dollar wise to stay on. I personally think morally you should be considering that more than the dollars, but I don't yeah. own a studio. But of course, it is top down the studio corporate attitude and then bottom up with some of the, the stars who are obviously selling the, the feature films. The pressure could be coming from all directions. Mm -hmm. This is, I guess, in comparison, a more trivial point. But it's also been announced in the last few days that Twitter is thinking about charging just shy of $20, $19.99 US dollars per month for verification mark that allows the public to know that an account is authentic. Um, is this going to have any sort of implication, do you think? I think that's not helpful at all. Uh, it, you know, the verification they had before, I don't under, I don't know it all that well, seemed to be working somewhat correctly. And the fact that you're going to charge people just to verify that you have mm. the right account seems, seems, it seems like a money grab. And again, that, I don't think that that puts Elon Musk in a good place uh, by, by having this happen right around the time that he took over. Yeah, I mean, I know they need to find ways to to step up the revenue. Uh, right. I, I don't imagine it's going to have a bearing on, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and the Warner Brothers account. If they get verified, it probably is going to be some of those smaller influences. Right. But it's just more noise that the Twitter that people liked uh, might be going away. Look, I, I'm going to show my age here a little bit, but when I was at PwC back in the early 2000s, MySpace was the, the social platform of the day. And Rupert Murdoch's News Corp then went and purchased it for $580 million in 2005. Uh, we've come a long way when you can buy the leading platform uh, for 580 mil uh, back then versus the 44 billion that came in for not one of the top social platforms in the world, um, not even one of the top 10. And we'll talk about that in a second. So values have changed. But the implication was six years later, News Corp sold uh, MySpace for just $35 million. So um, a, a loss of, I'm doing the maths quickly, $545 million in six years. At its peak, it had 80 million users. 
Uh, that was in 2008 when it sold that at half. Now, part of that was an innovative newcomer uh, emerging on the scene in the form of Facebook, but part of it was kind of as a result of a polarizing owner who didn't know how to operate what they bought. Do you think there are some parallels here, you know, in terms of more innovative newcomers and polarizing owners? Uh, yeah, the polarizing owners is certainly going to be a part of this. There are going to be the, the Musk loyalists that won't leave. And then there are going to be people who, who don't like him at all and leave. And then there are going to be the people in the middle who sort of go, well, I need to see where, where the behaviors are going and whether this makes sense, right? And how much this trickles down to the regular Twitter users is what's going to be really interesting, right? Mm. Do, is he losing millions of people a week? Is it a lot less or a lot more than that? All of that's going to play out in the next months to the next year. And the fact is, there's a lot of other platforms. Twitter and Facebook are not necessarily the ones that everyone are going to all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think really TikTok has done a fantastic job of, of bringing itself out there, creating really quick moments for people to share with each other. And whether it's Instagram, which is a part of Facebook, there are these offshoots and other ones that people are paying a lot of attention to. And we'll see whether, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a matter of what still matters. Yeah. And does it go the, the, the way that MySpace went? Well, no one could say that quite yet, but I would imagine, you know, by the spring or summer of, of next year, we'll start to have a better look of, you know, where Twitter is going to be. And if this was the right decision, Musk didn't even really want it when it was all said and done and ended up getting it. And this could be somewhat of an angry, you know, start because he's, he didn't want it in the first place. And now he's just gonna, he's going to behave a certain way and that'll level off. We'll see maybe level off in the next couple of months. Yeah, when you're such a high-profile uh, mogul as Murdoch was with MySpace and and Elon Musk certainly um, with his his profile and reputation, all of a sudden I think the name of the platform MySpace or Twitter becomes brought to you by Elon Musk Twitter, um, and yeah. you can't separate the two. And so you know, social media is as much about an identity. It's a much of do you identify with the community you're part of, and right he cannot help but shift what that community stands for just by his profile and the, the weight he carries. Um, one of the things that had started to happen even before he came on board was research that leaked from Twitter itself that the top uh, participants on the platform who, who um, have a disproportionately large amount of the activity, the number of tweets done, were dropping off quite precipitously. So there was a bit of a trend. Uh, this could accelerate it. I think the other thing though is there's been a lot of feedback that this has not become um, a particularly innovative as, as a platform. It's been a long time since new things have come, uh, especially for our industry, rich media, innovation, creativity are critical. And if you can't find it on Twitter, plus there's a polarizing owner, it then starts to um, motivate people to look further afield. And exactly. based on that, we talked about Twitter not being in the top 10. In fact, Twitter, uh, according to Statista, the, the market research company, as of January of this year, Twitter was the 15th most popular social network worldwide. I didn't know there was 15. And that was based on the number of monthly active users. Twitter had 436 mil. Facebook has 2.9 billion. Then you've got YouTube at 2.6 billion. Ideal for our industry, again, video-based. Instagram, 1.5 billion. TikTok, out of nowhere in the past few years, has crossed the billion mark. Twitter sits behind Snapchat at 557 mil. It sits behind Pinterest at 444 mil. So 
I guess, again, looking at our industry, does the takeover even matter? Is this a relevant form of, of marketing, a, a relevant platform for movie marketers based on how many users it's got and why they visit, which is predominantly for news? That's going to, honestly, that's going to be the question, right? Is to, hey, maybe this isn't as relevant as we thought it is. And, you know, Musk is all about creating innovation and making mm -hmm. changes that that really affect the world, or at least that's what he tries to do. And he's going to try to do that with this, whether he's able to, He's he's got to get, you know, once you get rid of the bots, that's going to be a real question of how many members he really has. Mm -hmm. After that, which is probably going to be a significant less, we'll see there, you know, YouTube and and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook really are good mediums that studios can still use um, to promote their films. And I have seen a lot of exhibitors use TikTok incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't think necessarily you're going to market films through TikTok, but it has it is it has really worked. And sometimes it even works at the very specific rural level. It's just mm -hmm. a specific theater getting the people to to come out and go to that one. I, I you know, we'll see. Yeah. It's, it's going to be an interesting couple of months to see where where this all shakes out. Absolutely. So we'll see how it plays out. It won't be for lack of movies that um, advertising disappears. We're about to hit award season. We're about to hit some genuine blockbusters. So the um, the supply of contents there, it's just whether this is seen as a platform they want to align themselves with. So with that in mind, uh, Ryan, there's not much happening next week. We're in a bit of a lull. Um, Armageddon time will go wide. Uh, again, some really strong reviews around that. Um, it's whether it's the time of year uh, for people to want to get into those specialized titles. Uh, hopefully they've seen the trailers uh, ahead of uh, some of the more specialized films we've spoken about earlier today and it takes off. And then of course, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever the week after that. So thank you for joining us uh, this week. Uh, wish Simon all the very best in South Africa and look forward to him joining us again. And we'll catch everyone else behind the screens uh, in seven days time. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow Movio, Numero and Vista Group on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna.